I want to invite everyone else to go with me to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We'll be looking at the first three verses this morning of Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. Romans 8, verses 1 to 3. I'll read them and we'll pray. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Oh God, I need you. And Lord, I pray that I would be crucified in Christ and that the text would speak and that you would hide me behind the text and that the text would do its work. That the power is not in a preacher's words or in a sermon or the spin of a phrase. That the power is in the simple, direct explanation of the living words of God. And so, Lord, I thank you for the power of the word, and we trust it. And God, I pray that it would accomplish that which you've sent, that it will not return void. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I am excited because there are a couple of weddings brewing in the LCC family, and uh, weddings are much more fun than funerals. And um, when we were at our church in West Virginia, there was a time I'd gone through a season of a lot of funerals. And I was at a dinner, and I was sitting with, I don't know why, it, it was some elderly folks. And I just said, uh, I, I'm tired of doing funerals. I want to do some weddings before we do any more funerals. And it was just like, I don't know what it was, but we went through like five or six weddings before there was another funeral. That was great. So uh, if there's some folks thinking maybe there's some things that we, could, we can make that work out here. I, I'm teasing. Well, Chick and Sandy helped us out there with having a wedding instead of, you know, and, uh, and um, anyway, there are, so as you're thinking about weddings and getting what it makes you always reflect on when you got married or when I got married, and um, there are a lot of benefits that come with being married that you don't realize. Some, I remember soon thereafter, Jamie and I got married, that we went up to, a, a, filled out a forms, and went up to the guy at the counter, and he, and he said, um, I don't know, did I just go dead? Just hear me? Okay, good. All right, good. Um, and, and the guy was like, did you guys just get married? And, and I was like, yeah, how could you tell? You could, it was probably just our romantic looks at one another, right? And he was like, no, you only need one form, and you filled out two. And I was like, oh, okay. So it was a benefit. We could save paper. And, um, 
And, and there's lots of other things like that, and uh, uh, you know that that you share forms, you share rent. You know, she can help proofread grad school papers, and um, you can take turns driving. Um, and I don't know if any of you noticed this, and, and I know you can't imagine this, but as I was dating Jamie, I had uh, to deal with a sort of an intimidating future father-in-law, and. Uh, and, and so there was, there was like rules, and there was, a, I think he thought that about 11 o'clock at night that I just turned into some like, I don't know, just like animal, because it was like, time for Jason to go home, you know, if I was staying late, there late, like time, boys, time to go, or, and, I, and my dad would be the, kind of a similar way, like being careful, so one of the things I remember at, at our wedding, after we got married and went to the reception, where we were getting in my car to leave the reception, and of course, after you get married, you're leaving the reception, we're going to a hotel, and I remember how awkward it was that both of our dads were in the parking lot, knowing what was going to be happening, and were happy, and I remember it was, it was weird, they're smiling, and I'm like, you, you were going to beat me before th today about this, and it was this kind of this change that all of a sudden the frown and the, 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 the furrowed brow of a dad protecting his daughter was now this happy, like, welcoming of a son-in-law, and it was just a, a very big change, and there's a similar sense in which um, as we come into salvation in Christ, that there are many benefits um, in the life of a believer that come about. And so as we come to the book, the chapter of Romans 8, there are themes in this chapter of the eternal security of the believer, the sanctification or the growing as Christian, and the Spirit's ministry to a believer. I don't know if you have a favorite chapter in the Bible. Does anyone have a favorite chapter in the Bible? Uh, what is it, Dan? Okay, good. Uh, mine is probably 1 Corinthians 15, but for a lot of people, Romans 8 is a favorite chapter in the Bible. In fact, there are a lot of people that will say this is the best chapter in the Bible. In fact, several years ago, I was at a conference, and um, Derek Thomas was there, and he said that this was the best chapter in the Bible. And he told a little story about how he said that one time at church, and he had a deacon come up to him afterwards and confronted him on that. Now, when you say one verse is the best chapter in the Bible, isn't that implying that other chapters aren't as good? And, and he was like, well, imagine you're on your deathbed, and I'm your pastor, and I come in, and I can, you got two minutes before you die, you want me to read the first few chapters of, of Chronicles or Romans 8? You know, like, let's pick one. And so we need to chill out a little bit there. Um, well, um, Romans 8 is a believer's assurance, and I hope that Romans 8 will become a sweet source of assurance for you as a believer as well. Paul has been presenting the gospel throughout Romans and is anticipating distortions of it and how, you know, mankind is ruined in sin. God's remedy is Jesus, and we still mix up even that message. And so back in chapter 6, he had um, responded to the objection that should we continue to in sin that grace may abound. And then he, he said how that sin would be now permissible and under grace. And he's like, no, no, no. He's explaining how grace changes us in our union with Jesus and how it, it frees us from this. And then in chapter 7, 
the, the other extreme, like running from rules or running to rules, is, well, is the law sin? Should we run away from the law? And he's like, no, 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 the law is good. And it points us to this, but the law is inadequate to save. It doesn't resolve the sin problem that we have. So how is a Christian, a justified person, supposed to deal with that ongoing sin in their life? If we've been moved, as Romans has told us, from one realm to another, how are we supposed to live if the law of Moses doesn't help? And, um, and this is where Romans 6 and 7 and 8 come and shows us that the gospel frees us and enables us to live this Christian life through what is called our union with Christ. That we are in union with Christ. And we'll see that phrase, a picture of that union here in chapter 8 verse 1 in him the answer to the questions ending chapter 7 is in chapter 8 who will deliver us Christ delivers us we're delivered by the purposes of God the promises of God and the Holy Spirit of God so what does salvation mean for us what are the benefits of this salvation Romans 8 is a grand chapter, and we're going to be in Romans 8 for a little while. Romans 8 starts off with, there is therefore no condemnation. And it ends with that grand passage of how who will separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or all these things? We, no, we'll not be separated. So it begins with no condemnation. It ends with no separation. It has these great themes of assurance. This is a great chapter about eternal security and sanctification and the work of the Holy Spirit. The, 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 the word for Holy Spirit, it only shows up about like, like 30 times in the whole book of Romans, and 20 of them are in chapter 8. And so the emphasis of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives is very condensed here in Romans 8. It shows us these, the riches of the gospel and how they're for everybody. I mean, every, every believer, you don't, there's not classes of believers that some that have the VIP access and some that do not. That this is for all believers. And so chapter 8 describes these benefits that come with justification in this life and in the next. And interesting, I want you to get this. In Romans 8, there is not one imperative, meaning there's not one command. So if you're looking for a very practical chapter we, we sometimes we look for where's the command what am i supposed to do and here is one of the grandest chapters in the entire bible and it just tells us what we are what we are in jesus and i think there's something for us to absorb there that that the riches that we have in our union with christ that we are first we to be before we do and so, the, that doesn't mean it's not practical. The practical application of a chapter without imperatives is for us to believe them and believe and drink from these truths deeply. And so I hope that these assurances in Romans 8 will be a deep well that, you, that will richly bless you. So what does it mean to be saved and the first answer, our first point of this is in chat, verse 1. What does it mean to be saved? What, to be saved from condemnation. Be saved from condemnation. Now, 
for this first point, I've got three sub-points about the timing of it, what the condemnation is, and then the condition of it, and we'll see if that fills up our time, if we can get to the other two points, or we'll just do that next week. But it says, Therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, literally, if you were to take the Greek of this and just do it word for word, no, consequently now, condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That the first word in the sentence is that negative, the no. And it doesn't mean that Paul's trying to do it, but there's an emphasis in word order here, that he's trying to emphasize that there is not, consequently, now, condemnation. Now, it says, therefore, you know, when you see therefore, you ask, what's it there for? So it's connecting us immediately to immediately what's going on in chapter 7, but ultimately back to what he's been saying from the end of chapter 3 on about how we've messed up, the humans have messed up, sin's the problem, and that we can't cure it through religion, we can't cure it through law, we can't cure it by going our own way. We need a righteousness that's not from inside of us, it's from outside of us, and a righteousness that only comes through a relationship with Jesus, and it only comes by faith, that we're, we receive this righteousness by faith alone. And so, uh, so if no is saying that there's none of this for any time, then he uses that word for now. The real time, right now, therefore is now no condemnation. So the timing of this, the, the timing, Christian, get this, when you, the time for you to wait when there is not going to be condemnation for you is not when you pass from this life to the next and you stand before the judgment seat and he goes, okay, you're saved, so you're not going to experience this. You right now are freed and there is no condemnation on you. I want you to take that, make the gospel real now. There is now no condemnation. So, don't respond with self-condemnation. This objective truth should become your subjective experience. Instead of carrying around this low-grade fever of guilt and condemnation, you're like, okay, I know God like forgave me of like the big stuff and the going to heaven part, but there's still a lot of other condemnation and consequences and stuff that I'm dealing with. And like he kind of forgave me of the big ones, but then I still got to kind of clean up and work there. No, 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 no. There is no condemnation that when God looks at you, that, that holy judgment of a just and righteous God, that frown of his judgment is not on you. It is a joy and a smile. He's happy. He, he is, he is, he, you're not condemned. You're forgiven. He sees you the same way he sees Christ because you're in Christ. There is no condemnation. So that's the timing of it, but the condemnation. Well, what's this condemnation? Well, he told us in John 3, Jesus said that those that hadn't believed on him were condemned already. That everybody is already condemned that judgment rests on those who are not in Christ. That you will face the full and final condemnation from God in eternal punishment. And condemnation in Romans 
That word condemnation is used three times in Romans. It's in Romans 5, 16, and 18, and then here in Romans 8, verse 1. In Romans 5, 16, it says, And the free gift is not, not the result of one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. And what that's saying is that the, the sin nature that we inherited from Adam brought condemnation. That we are under condemnation. And then in verse 18 of chapter 5, it says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So, so, so this condemnation is what we were all under. So condemnation, the d definition of this word means to condemn or to render the verdict of guilty. It's a, a legal decision of guilt in a criminal way. Often when someone is condemned, it means that the ensuing punishment is understood, that the condemnation is looming. And the way to not be condemned was to, by the righteous obedience of one of Christ and believing and accepting his righteousness. And of course, when in chapter 4 of Romans, he spoke of Abraham and David's faith, that they had this relationship that they received. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So this saving relationship the saving relationship away from condemnation comes by personal faith, not by universal salvation. And I want you to get this. When it says there, we're just going to take the, the text word by word. There is therefore now no condemnation. How, what a joyful thing. But here's what I want you to th that Paul didn't end that there's no condemnation. If he'd ended there, there, you could maybe, the idea that everybody's going to be saved, that there's this, you know, there's this rumor, especially in modern, in modern religious circles, that eventually everybody gets there, God wouldn't condemn anybody, da-da-da. But he gives the condition, okay, it doesn't just end there. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is one of the most joyful and assuring and, 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 and just a crown of a verse. But this verse is not good news for everybody. There are two classes of people. There are those that are in Christ and those that are not in Christ. And the difference is everything. It's the difference between condemnation and no condemnation. It's the difference between pardon and judgment. It's the difference between life and death. It's the difference between heaven and hell. This verse is good news, but it's not good news for everyone. It is good news for the believer, but it is bad news for the unbeliever. That false rumor that everybody makes it is not true. John chapter 5 and verse 24, Jesus said, Most assuredly I say to you, he that hears my words and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, 
but is passed from death unto life. To hear and believe is how you pass from this judgment for, to life. There is therefore no condemnation to those that are in. That picture, picture that, that Christ and that preposition that you're in him, that in that box that you're put in Christ, and every, everywhere he is, you are. Everywhere he's been, you've been. Everything that's true about him is true of you. And, and this, uh, this union with Christ is you, the basis of our assurance. How do we know that I'm not in con- condemned? I'm in Christ. How do you know that you're not condemned? I'm in Christ. To be in Christ, this is the basis of the believer's assurance. There are many, many reasons to condemn Jason Bird. But there is no condemnation because Jason Bird is in Jesus Christ. And there are many reasons for you to be condemned. But there are none if you are in Christ. Those who have received Christ have the consequence and the verdict rightly done by a just God that there is no condemnation. God is not mad at you, Christian. He is not frowning at you. He is not disappointed in you. There is no condemnation. And this is a hard thing for us to grasp, isn't it? You know, we sing the song, uh, Before the Throne of God Above. And there's the one line that says, When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. So that there's a sense in which when, when, when I'm tempted, the Satan is, all, is called the accuser of the brother. And he's going to be telling us, this is true about you and this is you. And you're like, no, no, I need to be, remind him. Not, when he tells me about my past, he needs, I need to remind him of, of Jesus' past. That Okay, but that sin was condemned in Jesus and I'm in him. And then we can remind Jesus, Satan of his future, that he's going to be cast to the lake of fire. And that, that this, is, this is the truth here. Um, I want to put it in an older hymn, John Wesley's hymn, Amazing Love, when he speaks about how he was in this dungeon and how it filled with light and my chains fell off and my heart was set free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. And then there's the stanza that sings bold and triumphantly, no condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. And then there's the consequence and the application, one of the benefits, bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the prize of Christ my own and claim the crown through Christ my own bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own that the holy judge of the universe has declared if you are in Christ not guilty he declares us not guilty in a way that doesn't just wash it under the rug or sweep it under the rug. He declares us righteous and not guilty, not just by overlooking it or by pulling some strings. He declares us righteous and not guilty in a way that satisfies divine justice. Justice was satisfied. He poured out every bit of condemnation, every bit of wrath on his own son. Jesus was the propitiation. He took it. He took the blow. He took that penalty 
and there's no condom there, there's no double jeopardy with god he can't punish sin on jesus and then punish it on you there's no condemnation left for you so when you are tempted by satan or by your own flesh about who you are and your guilt within brother and sister dwell on who you are in jesus you are in Christ. There's no condemnation. Go to Romans 8, verse 1. There's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. I, I love how hymns kind of put theology in this stick with us. Jesus paid it all. They didn't say, like, Jesus paid most of it, and then, and then there's a little bit that I have to work on, or Jesus paid 95% of it, or the big ones. And he expects he paid the bill and I'm supposed to take, pick up the tip. No, he didn't. He, he paid all of it. I, I, we, it's not I do my part, he does his part, and we meet in the middle. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. He, he took it, so dwell on who you are in Christ. Satan likes to bring up the past. We say, in my place condemned he stood. I, I am in Christ Think about who's writing this, who's the, the human author God uses under inspiration to give us this verse. That no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. This is Paul. This is a religious terrorist. I'm on purpose using, I know it's an inflammatory language. This is a religious terrorist. So think jihadist, something like this. This is the man who stood over and ordered and orchestrated the, the, the martyrdom of Stephen. This is the man who wreaked havoc on the church that was hunting down followers of the way. And he has his Damascus Road experience. And so this is the one, so, so I'm assuming there aren't any people in this room, maybe, maybe I might be surprised, uh, that have been, have persecuted and murdered and sought out to hunt down many, many groups of Christians. And so you could argue from the worst to the, not that there is a worst, but if this is Paul saying he's, there's no condemnation, how about you? Now, then, and, and I don't want to, I know sometimes people use language and they don't mean it in a certain way, but I want us to be careful because language is important. Who declares us to have no condemnation? Who declares us righteous? It is God who does that. And sometimes we use language like, well, I know God forgives me, but I just have a hard time forgiving myself. And I'm not, and I'm not trying to embarrass anybody, but I also want to push back on that type of thinking a little bit, okay? Because who do you think you are that you have the power to forgive sins anyway? You know, no one here, you're not the judge. When you say, I can't forgive myself, you're putting yourself in the seat of the judge. You don't forgive sins. They weren't against you. They were against the, you committed cosmic treason against the divine king of the universe. He is the one who forgives. And if he declares you to have no condemnation, I can't forgive myself? Come on. Um, just we'll push back a little bit on that type of thinking. There, So quit trying to help God out and atone for your own sins. He had that covered. The pull, and, and part of that is the pull that we always feel like we have to do something in our own self-righteousness to contribute to salvation or the atoning work of God. But that's not true. So quit trying to help out God in atoning for your sins. 
get over this self-righteousness of trying to atone for yourself. Or here's how Robert Mounts put it in his commentary on Romans. He says this, It follows that if condemnation as an objective reality has been removed, there is no legitimate place for con condemnation as a subjective experience. Meaning, if God said you're not condemned, there's not a place for us to feel this condemnation continuing. And then he says this, To insist on feeling guilty is but another way of insisting on helping God with our salvation. How deeply embedded in human nature is the influence of works righteousness. I'll say that again. To insist on feeling guilty is but another way of insisting on helping God with our salvation. How deeply embedded in human nature is the influence of works righteousness. God has declared you to have no condemnation. Don't feel it. Believe it. So let this objective truth become the subjective experience for you, Christian. Don't respond with self-condemnation. So what does it mean to be saved? Number one, it means that you are free from condemnation. Secondly, you're free from sin and death. Verse 2 says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You're set free. And later on, we're going to get to the, the work of the Holy Spirit in this life. But there's a quote that says that gravity never ceases, but it can be overcome. That gravity works, but you can overcome gravity. In fact, when you stand up at the end of this service, you're going to overcome a little bit of gravity, right? And we even say as you sat somewhere for a while, you're like, gravity just took over and I can't get up, right? Um, when you get on an airplane... There are pilots around somewhere. Um, pilots don't, they, they don't have the power to overcome, to, to do away with gravity. The, the laws of gravity are still in, but the difference is there is a force, hopefully working well, with the doors shut properly, that is stronger than gravity, right? There's a force on the plane that's stronger than the forces of gravity so that they can overcome that gravity, right? There's still the force of gravity, but there's the force. And so that's a good illustration for us of that, that we still have the force of, of, of sin in our lives and indwelling sin, but the force of the Holy Spirit is much greater than that of the force of our flesh going on. And so as, as um, one author put, to run and work, the law commands, this poem, yet gives me neither feet nor hands. But better news the gospel brings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. So what does it mean to be saved? It means to be free from condemnation. It means to be free from sin and death. And then verse 3, it's to be free and saved by divine accomplishment. Verse 3 says, for the God... For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh we talked about that last week in chapter 7 could not do and how did he do this by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh I've said before that salvation comes not by human achievement but by divine accomplishment. And God overcame this 
not by flesh or the law he did what but by sending his own son it was initiated by god god the father made the initiative and we didn't aren't saved because we tried to keep the ten commandments or we kept the golden rule or by the works of the law It's come by the divine accomplishment, the divine initiative of the Father to send His Son to be sin for us, and He condemns sin in the flesh. So those that have received Christ have the verdict of no condemnation. God is not mad at us. The frown of God's judgment no longer looks upon me. When you are tempted to despair, you can look up and see what that before the throne of God above. My name is written on his hand. He's declared you to be righteous, that the holy judge of the universe has declared you not guilty. He declares us not guilty in a way that satisfies that d divine justice. And it is an initiative done by God. And you stand right now under no condemnation. I want to read a lengthy quote in conclusion. This is from R.C. Sproul. He said this, he said, If we are Christians, not only is there no condemnation for sins we have committed, but also we have moved beyond condemnation. For whatever we are going to do tomorrow, or the day after tomorrow, or the day after that, this is one of the most beautiful texts in Scripture for the assurance of salvation. The threat of condemnation is removed forever if we are in Christ. It is unthinkable that after what God did to his son on the cross, that he will visit more wrath upon his son. He drank the cup of condemnation of the father for his sheep forever. There is no condemnation left anymore for his son. And if you are in the son, we are in the cleft of the rock. We are in the shelter of the rock of ages. We are covered and hidden safe now and forevermore. And so, brothers and sisters, we want to think upon this and sing with boldness as we respond to this with Wesley's hymn, No Condemnation, Now I Dread. Jesus and all in Him is mine, alive in Him my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. If you're in Christ, that's you. If you're not in Christ, that's not good news for you. But the good news is, if you'll repent of your sins and believe on Christ, you can be in him and condemnation be removed from you as well. Let's pray together.